Amen. Go and have a seat. God, you are holy. You're completely other than we are. And your word says that because you are holy, for those who come near you, you are to be treated as holy. So uh, we pray that in this moment we'd, we'd enter into a time in your word, as brief as it may be, uh, with a sense of sobriety, asking for you to reveal to us the things that we want to hide, uh, asking you to help us obey the things we want to avoid. And God, we pray that we would in some measure be able to behold you as the one who made us by yourself and for yourself, the only one who deserves our life and our praise and our worship. And we give you this time and ask that you'd use it for the sake of your name and for our stability as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We can grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes here. Uh, I wanna, we're going to finish the book of Second Peter. As a church, we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we're finishing today the book of Second Peter, a short book in the New Testament. But I actually want you to go to Luke chapter 22 if you have your Bibles. We'll have it up here. If you don't, uh, you can grab a, a Bible out of the chair in front of you. Hopefully there's some there. As you look at Luke chapter 22, you know, one thing I talked about last week is... Um, you know, we, at times you consider, like, if, if I was to give parting words to someone, like, what might I say? Like, what might I say that would be significant, that would leave a lasting impact, that would capture maybe the things I would want them to, to do and to think and hold on to? And Second Peter, in a way, like some of the other letters in the, the New Testament, are kind of parting words. You know, in this book, Peter acknowledges that his time is is short, that he's, his life is going to be taken from him in short order, and he would be soon historically to die uh, a martyr's death because of his faith in Jesus. But looking backward in Luke chapter 22, this moment right here, and if you've read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that, that Peter wasn't always a strong preacher of Jesus. Like there's a, there's a moment later in the gospel, as you see it in Luke chapter 22, you see it and Mark uh, detailed in a similar way where there's a moment where um, Peter, in Mark's account, basically said, Jesus, if everybody falls away, I won't. Like, the whole world can fall away, but I'll stand strong. I'll follow you to the end. And in Luke chapter 22, we find this particular account where Jesus basically speaks of Peter's soon-to-be denial of him. He says this in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon. He's Simon Peter, same guy who's writing Second Peter that we're studying. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So what's really significant about this is, is sure enough, as you turn the page or maybe you look to your right a little bit in your Bible, you see that Peter is confronted by no one greater than a servant girl who wants to basically demonstrate that, hey, this guy was one of Jesus' followers and so Peter, fearful, denies even knowing Jesus three times because of the, the fearful moment in front of even a servant girl. The same one who said, I'll follow you till death. If everyone else falls away, I'll follow you. But Jesus foretells that denial, and he says, when you turn again, 
pointing forward to there's going to be a moment after my resurrection where you're going to you're going to believe more fully. You're going to turn again in faith toward me. And when you do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to strengthen your brothers. And so as we finish this book, I think it's very appropriate to feel the weight of that charge from Jesus because this is exactly what he does at the end of this book. He does it in the whole book, really. But there's something significant about hearing the final words of Second Peter. So let's read that together as we kind of have the context of Jesus' charge to him. Now at the end of his life, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, here's what we read as his final words in this letter that was circulated in Asia Minor to the Christians who were scattered about. And he says this, here it is a letter from God to us to strengthen us. It says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And here's the primary thing we're going to focus on this morning. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word for us. And so as we, as we look back to even to last week, and I don't have time to kind of unpack all of last week. I wouldn't do that to you. Preach two sermons in one. At the end of, right before what we just read, particularly in verse 13, if you scan there just for a second, it says this. It says, but according to his promise, the promise of God, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what we covered, if I could just briefly summarize it, the part of what we hear in chapter 3 and in chapter 2 is that there is a, there's, a, there's a moment in time, the culmination of human history will be the return of Jesus Christ. He's going to come again. So even as we celebrate the advent or his arrival the first time, there's going to be a second time where he arrives and not to suffer this time. He's going to come to, he's going to pour out his judgment upon the ungodly. He's going to rescue his people and his name alone will be exalted. That's the summation of last week. You can go back and listen to it if you're interested. It's a heavy chapter. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 are heavy in some ways. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, his second coming is a moment of sweet relief that we wait for as our blessed hope and the assurance and the culminating really work of our salvation that what we know now in part we'll get to know in full. What we know is now in a mirror kind of dimly lit we'll know in glorious clarity when we meet God face to face. And so Peter says according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, that new heaven, new earth, the establishment of a place where only righteousness dwells, since you're looking for those things, be a people who are holy, spotless, blameless, and at peace. And you might think to yourself, those words seem like a pretty high bar, like be without spot or blemish. And one of the things I would just say really briefly as we think about the life, for life of a professing Christian, just, just to be really clear, like we don't live lives of perfection, okay? So we'll talk just this morning about the, the, the picture that we're all in process. 
there's a way in which like we're given a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. There's a one-time declaration, it's called justification in the Bible, where God declares us innocent, although we're guilty, by faith in Jesus alone. But what happens is that Christians, having come to faith in Jesus, we have a life to live here in this little while that we call life on this side of heaven. And in that little while, we're called to be people who live differently. And Peter commends us time and time again in this book. Chapter 1 is a really good example of this picture that if you've trusted in God, if you've, you're righteous through your faith and knowledge of Jesus, then supplement your faith with fruits of the Spirit of God, knowledge and virtue and self-control and brotherly affection and love, and all these things. Your life should look different. You should work outwardly that which God has has worked inwardly. And so in that sense, he says, what is God going to find when he comes back? We're we're people who are desiring that future place and we're to be those who are without spot or blemish, at peace with God and with one another. He says, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent. So we saw in the first chapter, there's this picture that we don't work hard for the grace of God to somehow obtain something from God. But we work hard in Christ by the grace of God. The grace of God not only saves, but changes and empowers the people of God to be different in this world. Just as God is set apart, he's holy, there's a way in which, in a very real way, his people are holy, set apart unto God, different than the world by the presence of the Almighty God in them, in us, right? Foreigners in this world, we're just passing through right? Sojourners, pilgrims. That's what we saw in Peter's first letter that we studied months ago. But Peter says in the first chapter, verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, the same word he uses here, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent, put effort to your faith. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1, be diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. Our diligent labor to please God over the course of our lives will be evidence that we belong to God. Peter says, be diligent to be found by him. This isn't just some sort of mail-in evaluation at the end. God will find us in a particular state. Peter says, be found by him, having lived a life that pleases him, that reflects his nature and his character, that propels his glory into the nations that makes much of him. So when we see him face to face, he'll be able to find faith on earth. We'll find us trusting in him, calling out to him while he's absent, working to make much of him in this life. There really is for the believer, for the Christian, like a grace-driven, grace-driven grit in this life. Be diligent in your faith. And that's really the picture that he starts with in this book and that he leaves us with at the end. He says in verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We saw that last week that, that there's some question that some people may bring. It's like, hey, if the whole, all of human history is culminating in Jesus' return, what's taking him so long? Like this world is broken. There's all kind of evil that takes place. Like why doesn't he just come back now? And Peter addresses it by basically saying that God doesn't operate in the same standard of time that you and I do. He's not slow as some people understand slow, but his slowness is a reflection of his mercy. That his patience is salvation. Like so closely linked is his delay that it is salvation. 
He wants more and more people to come to know him, to turn away from sin and self-rule and believe in him. And so his patience is his kindness. His slowness is, in fact, salvation. And it's interesting that in this section we hear Peter acknowledge that, hey, Paul says some things that are hard to understand. This is a really interesting part of this letter, very human part of this letter. And there's some comfort in this. Like many commentators, including R.C. Sproul, were like, this is actually really comforting for all of us. That Peter's like, yeah, if he's sitting at the table with some other believers, the book of Romans would have been circulating at the time. He could be like, yeah, Romans 9 through 11, like, ah, it's hard to understand. I get it. Like, I'm not I'm sure what Paul is writing, and it's difficult to understand. That's comforting. I don't know about you. You can read some things and be like, man, this is, this is high-level theology. It's deep waters. There's a degree to which Peter's like, there's some things that Paul says that are hard to understand, but he also says this. Look back in verse 16. It says, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures or the rest of scriptures. So he simultaneously acknowledged there's deep things in Paul's letters, but he affirms internally in the Bible that Paul's letters are on par with Old Testament scripture. This is a really significant internal evidence for the Bible that Peter believed that Paul's letters were in fact on par with Old Testament scripture and prophets. And Peter says, there are going to be some people who take difficult things and twist them. And they twist them to their own destruction. We talked a lot about false teachers. We talked about marks of false teachers. And one of the things that marks a false teacher, and that in fact marks our enemy, the devil, is a twisting of the truth. And some people have even said that Satan only tells lies when they're almost the truth. But twisted truth is no truth at all. So when you twist truth, you do it unto your destruction because you twist truth and it becomes a lie. So Peter says, don't fall into those things. Like, don't fall into the traps of false teaching and lose your stability. And that's what he, that's his final thought is as opposed to being instable. In verse 17, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that there are false teachers, there are going to be those who twist the truth and twist difficult things into their own agenda. He says, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. Be prepared, beloved, anticipating this, knowing beforehand. Be careful that you're not carried away by them. Be stable and steadfast in your faith. And the question then becomes, this is what we'll finish with just for a few more minutes, is how do we cultivate stability in our faith? Like, What does a stable walk with Jesus look like? Like, How do we pursue it? And the, the simple recipe, although it's simple, it's profoundly difficult because of our own struggle with sin, is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Peter says, make progress in your faith. Continue on. Establish yourself. He uses that word in chapter 1, verse 12. And Peter ends how he starts. So go back to chapter 1. Just look to the left if you're in your Bible in chapter 1. In verse 2, this is how he started the book. And I mentioned this when we started the book. In verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He teaches, he unpacks the various things we preach through. Now go to the end of the book in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So this call to grow bookends this letter. 
grow in respect to your salvation. You grow in respect to the grace that you have been given by God. And so maybe you just say it this way, a stable faith is a growing faith. Don't get carried away, away by false teaching and lose your stability. Don't give way to a shallow consumer Christianity, but have a faith that has depth. How? By growing in the grace of God and the knowledge of Jesus in your life. And for the believer, our waiting for the return of Christ, our waiting in this life, like isn't a stationary waiting. So we think of waiting as just kind of sitting still, like I'm just waiting for Jesus to return. That's actually not the picture in the Bible. A a progressive faith in in the sense of moving toward our ultimate goal of pleasing God in the end is found through grit and work. Christians run while we wait. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 gives a picture of this. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about many of the Old Testament saints who follow God, even though they didn't have the fulfillment of the promises, since we have those great witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. And that's, that's a good description of sin, right? Our old way of life, the old way of life that we died to, this is a picture in baptism, it's sticky. The clothes of the old man, they want to hang on. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I'm just going to assume every single one of us knows what I'm talking about. There are particular ways that old way of life wants to cling to you. And the author of Hebrews says, put those things aside. The sin that so easily sticks to you and entangles your feet, put them aside. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lay aside the sin that weighs you down and the patterns of the old you that entangle you. And maybe for somebody in this room, through the testimony of my brothers and sisters, through this word, you need to be reminded that you can't have it both ways. Like you can't live for the world and try to live for God. Jesus won't share you. He's passionate about the spirit that he's put within you. And he's going to pursue you as a as gracious savior, as a loving father who disciplines his children to bring them back to a place of blessing and obedience. He's going to pursue us. And so lay those things aside. Run with endurance. Fix your eyes on Jesus who despised the shame and the pain of the cross and endured it for the joy of being with his father in the end, seated in glory. A stable faith is a growing faith. And some of this is found in just the the simple realization, church family, that every single one of us were were in process. Like, by the grace of God, we we are what we are, and by the grace of God, we, we are not what one day we will be in Christ. And that means that we're a work in progress. So none of us can claim any sort of spiritual advantage over one another, but we're called to labor in this life for a trajectory of growth and stability and faith, a steadiness about our walk with God. And part of what we see maybe as a recipe for that is to watch your life. 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. This is a pastoral letter and a charge to Paul's young protege, Timothy. He says, practice these things, notably reading Scripture publicly and exhorting and encouraging through Scripture and teaching Scripture. He says, immerse yourself in those things so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your 
hears. Let me just say a couple things really briefly. Watch your life. Watch your, watch your life, your character. This call is to Timothy as a pastor, but the pastoral qualifications are really meant for all believers. Like watch your life, watch what you listen to, what you teach certainly, and invite other people into your life to watch your life as well. Did you notice that in every single testimony that was shared earlier, that every single person had a significant component of community in their story? There was either a single person, usually multiple people, that had a role in helping them get on a path of spiritual life and stability. And that's not by accident. That's divinely on purpose. So this call to watch your life is not just trust your own evaluation of yourself. Yes, watch your life. But invite a brother, invite a sister, invite a friend who loves Jesus too to endeavor to do that same thing with you to watch your life to give you the encouragement of the scriptures, to remind you of things that are true when you're prone to believe lies. And we talked about it in this way, like we have the word of God in our hearts, the people of God by our sides, right? It's a good reminder for us. But we're not fully mature yet, not right now. And until God completes his work in us, when we're with him, we're still prone to wander. If we're not growing in grace and knowledge, we're drifting into instability. And so the question becomes, is are you growing in grace? Are you, am I growing in grace? I don't know how many of you try to grow plants. How many of you would say you have a brown thumb in this room? There's a lot more than that, I'm sure of it. But, but like if, if you, if for some of you actually have the green thumb, if you came to a friend and, and you walk in and like all their plants are dead, which there's some people in this room that that's exactly what would happen. Like you'd walk in and be like, why are your plants dead? You'd be like, well, I just, I got it. I watered it this one time and then I put it outside once and then, it's over here sulking in the corner now. I don't know what the problem is. And your botanist friend would be like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what plants need. They actually need ongoing food and encouragement. Why would you expect it to live and thrive if you only fed it one time? And it's a, it's a funny way to depict. And I think one of the dangers, and, and if you've been around CrossFit for a while, I've shared this through the lens of my own story and struggle, is that you can reach a place in your walk with God where you continually try to draw on previous grace, previous seasons of spiritual stability and investment in the Word of God, that will only get you so far. It's like believing that a, a, a cup of water will sustain you for months. It's good, and it will have some benefit. And the Word of God, and some of these illustrations break down because the word of God hidden in your heart will continue to kind of give life. But there is a way in the Christian life where we can't just rely on previous moments of grace. We need to be with God. We need to be in his word for today. We need to take steps of obedience today to do the, the next right thing. And if you could look at it this way, if you picture a pathway a pathway unto ultimately this entrance into heaven. It's like that pathway of obedience is paved with pavers of momentary choices of discipline and obedience. Like every step along the way offers stability under your feet in your walk with God unto the end of that entrance into the eternal kingdom of God being flung wide open for you in the end. Are we growing in grace.
Are we growing in our knowledge of God? Peter makes no qualms about it. He doesn't hold back. He says, supplement your faith by growing in grace, a spiritual fruit, and don't merely rely on previous seasons or moments of grace and growth. Today, right now, grow in, cultivate the grace of God in your life, and one of the primary ways, if not the primary way we do that is through the Word of God in our lives. Just one brief example. We read this as pastors over the weekend as we were doing a planning retreat together. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. He's giving them a final charge. Amongst other things, he says this. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Those things will build you up. Let them build you up. And I would say the same thing to you. It's still relevant right now to you as my family, as my friends, as fellow believers. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which will be able to build you up in your faith. That will always be true. May we be people that diligently, like faithfully, joyfully pursue and increase in the knowledge of God and the grace of God in our lives by putting away things that compete for our attentions. And Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 2, this wonderful picture of like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. You never graduate beyond grace. You never graduate beyond the word of grace, which truly are the fundamentals of the faith. Keep the word of grace in front of you to grow in grace. And I think the last words, and I'll finish with this, because I just don't have enough time to say more. I love the fact that Peter ends this book with like this threefold kind of declaration of his Savior. Just harken back to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is looking at Peter in a moment of pride. He looks at him later and says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, after he is resurrected. But in this moment, Peter's like self-confident. He's like, well, when, when you turn back, implying after you've fallen, strengthen your brothers. This is the final words he gives in this letter, which is his last written words to us as the people of God. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. He says in his last recorded words, it's almost as like you can feel him walking toward the entrance of heaven, skipping his step, stability in his faith, and words of praise in his mouth that all glory belongs to Jesus. That Christ, my Savior, Christ, my Lord, to Christ alone be the glory on this day and for every single day forevermore. Peter's commission from Jesus was to feed the sheep and to strengthen us, as it were. And, and maybe you need to hear the encouragement that these words come from a man who once lost his stability, who once denied even knowing Jesus. And maybe you're in that place in some degree. Maybe you've turned your back on the one who alone can offer you life and forgiveness. My encouragement to you from the words of your brother Peter to strengthen you is turn once again to Christ, your only Savior, Christ, your only Lord, and Christ, the only one who deserves glory 
and find encouragement in the fact that God is able, he's able to pick up those who reject him, forgive those who rebelled against him, restore those who have gone wayward. And he's a gracious God to do just that, isn't he? He is gracious, he's good, he's faithful, he's wise in all that he does. He's brought you here this morning to hear the greatest message that could ever be delivered. That by no doing of your own, you can be right with the God who made you. And that's only through Jesus. Trust in him today. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. And um, we will spend the rest of our days when we, we are done with this life. Every single moment we spend will be spent in awe of, of you. And we will join in the, the perpetual anthem of your angels who never stop circling your throne and singing the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And I pray that even as we sing a final song, as we lift our voices one more time, that we be reminded of the fact that we get to praise you. We can praise you today because we have hope for today, a living hope because Jesus is alive. And Jesus, just as you prayed for Peter, uh, we marvel at the fact that because you're always alive, you always pray for us. So we praise you for that in the midst of our brokenness and rebellion that we can have hope today. And I pray that the hearts of your people would be strengthened for stability, uh, for a vibrancy in faith, for a depth of faith that allows us to represent you well in this world, that allows us to take steps of faith that move us out of our comfort zone, that ultimately allow us to be a, a shining light in a world that is dark without you. And I pray for anyone in this room who's never surrendered to Jesus that this would be the day. That through the testimonies of our church family, through the proclamation of your word, through the wonder of the gospel, and faith in Christ alone, that they would be rescued today. We love you. All glory is yours. And we're grateful to be able to sing one last time. In Jesus' name, let's go ahead and stand together.